from your handout, you can see that we're going to be in the book of James, and if you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to follow along. If you, um, some time ago, Pastor Wallacher and I were looking at calendar year 2020, and we were looking at schedules and knew when he would be gone. This week and next week are two of those weeks, and we thought it would be best if I had a place to know as my own for um, a theme for our time of worship in Scripture, and we came across James, and we're going to be in the book of James. Um, when I'm preaching, not only this week, next week, but other times during the year. I'm going to use my introduction to the book of James and my introduction to this message as one and the same, and that's chap uh, James chapter 1, verse 1. And I would like to read that to you. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, tribes in the dispersion, greetings. It's almost certain that the author of this book is uh, James, the, son, the brother of Jesus himself. There would be those that would maybe say that that wasn't the case, but I think that the evidence for that is, is, is quite weak, and, and I, I am going forward confident that this is James, the brother of Jesus. Matthew 13, 15 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? We have three kind of rhetorical questions there. It isn't like it's putting something that isn't in fact. I think it's more the questions help us understand that it is them, that this, uh, these are real people. They're together. This is a family. Mark 6.3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not all his sisters here with us? And they took offense to him. They took offense to Jesus. I'm sure that Mary, his mother, did not take offense to Jesus, but I believe that probably everybody else in this verse was offended by who Jesus said that he was. This same Jesus is considered a pillar of the church, the church in Jerusalem. By this time, it would have been f about the year 44 A.D. He lived until the year of his death, 62. So this is only about 10 years past when Jesus was actually on this earth. It might be the earliest book written of the New Testament. Galatians 2.9 says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me, and they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, and that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. James was in the church in Jerusalem, and he was ministering to the people there, mostly Jews, but there was also Gentiles in that church, and Peter, as, I'm sorry, as Paul, as we know, was going to be ministering to the Gentiles. But so, so how do we know and understand how James got from just the brother of Jesus to the pillar of the church? 
He's called James the Just. He had extraordinary godliness. They said that his prayer life was such that his knees looked like those of camels. But in contrast to that, if we needed more evidence of his lack of faith, John 7, chapter 7, verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed. At one point he was an unbeliever in his own brother Jesus. The only thing that we have to go by that would make a difference in his life is 1 Corinthians 15, 7, where Paul would write, Then he appeared to James, then to all the, the apostles. This is after the resurrection of Jesus himself, and he had appeared to over 500 people, witnessing that he had come back to life, that he had raised from the dead, and James was one of those people that he showed himself to. So James's conversion of faith, I think that we can take from there, is no different than any other conversion of a Christian. And that is, God revealed himself to him. He reveals himself to other Christians. He penetrates that heart of stone. He changes that stone and brings about a saving faith. And that's what he did in his own brother. I have to tell you that I was kind of underimpressed with how James started his book. I would have liked to seen some real serious name dropping. Why didn't James make more of, of the point of his mother, Mary, and that Mary was, the, was also the mother to Jesus and to himself? and maybe throw in some names of the apostles that he had known and how great a work he had done. Show us some of his pedigree. And he did none of that. What he did was so simple, but it was so profound. And I don't know if if you really caught it, but what did James say? He said, James, a servant of of God and Jesus Christ, James wanted to be known solely as a servant. That was his character, it was his title, and it was his desire to be known as a servant. Here is a pillar of the church, a leader, and he is saying that no matter how great a leader you might be in the kingdom of God, you are no more than a servant of the Most High God. I think that's a great example for us that we should remember there is no greater calling in this life than to be a servant of God. And if at all I was serious about I was disappointed in his opening, shame on me. Why should I say or think that the servant of God, James, wasn't directly led by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what work he did and to be willing to read, study, interpret, and give us scripture. James is a God-centered book, 
and through the, our times together, when we're looking through his scripture, we're going to see evidence of that and things that he points out. And I think one of the things that quickly comes to our attention is the fact that Jesus is, that Jesus is God and God and the Lord Jesus are one. And if we think about it, that's kind of a startling statement for James to say because we'd have to go back to his own family. This person, this Jesus, is the same person and is also God of the universe. How amazing that is. Not only does James do this in his writing, but other writers in, in New Testament scripture want to connect us and make sure that we see that this Jesus that took on human form was also the God of the universe. Can you imagine what that must have been like? There's scripture that backs that and I think leads us to understand better. John 5, verses 23 through 23. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Those would profess to be Christians and say that Jesus Christ is not true God and true man. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, is not the true God of his word. And it's not the God that we worship. We know who Jesus Christ is. Can you imagine what that feeling must be like if you wanted to put that into terms of our own households, our own families? Think about, I guess the closest I could come up with, think about the households that would have a president of the United States come from them. What do those siblings think? That same person that we saw all those years and come to that point and how much more it must have made an influence on James himself. But also James makes an introduction, in his introduction, to who this, his words are directed. And there again, it's quite simple. It says the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I think that James is referring to the 12 tribes because he wants us to think of who God's people are. Who God's people were in the past, who God's people are in that church at that time. We know that the tel 12 tribes in the Old Testament were Israel and they would rebel after God and God would separate them and send them into exile. But even in the midst of that, we always know that the hand of mercy was upon his chosen people. The 12 tribes were scattered and dispersed in wrath because of the disobedience, but always were dispersed in God's mercy. The hand of God was always upon them. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, Though I removed you far off among the nations, though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. God was always with them. I think James is reminding Christians by their past, 
that God was faithful then and he will be faithful in the future, even if they face the dispersion. But I think there's another meaning to that word dispersion when he's talking to these people. And I think it's a positive because I think it speaks about how the gospel has been dispersed among so many different groups of people. It wasn't just to those 12 tribes, what we know as Israel, but it was given to all that would accept it, Jew or Gentile. It made no difference. They were part of that dispersion. Here again, James is showing us the nature of God. One of the things we see in James is he puts in information about the God that we serve. And here he's telling us that he is faithful. He ends his introduction with something just so subtle by saying greetings. And I think by saying that, he's telling God's people they have a reason to rejoice in all places and at all times. And he will make clear that in all of this letter that the reason that God can be trusted is because he is faithful. So moving on from our introduction, I want to take us to the part on your outline of this called The Trials and Tests of Faith. I'm going to be reading from chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. Follow along as I read those verses. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials and various, of various kinds, for you know that, know that testing of any faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one that who, who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, in the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with, his, with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he stood the test of his, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot temp, temp, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth 
by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James starts his letters to his brothers and sisters knowing Christians will face troubles and afflictions. Christians in this same sinful world will have, uh, as he says, trials. I believe these trials that he's talking about are challenges to our faith. Not only are they hardships, but they want to us to turn our back on God. The devil in, the, in these trials uh, and in endeavors to draw us as uh, draw us our man us as men into sin, and we are going to forget God. We should uh, counteract that tendency by remembering our afflictions are in God's hands. These trials will will produce for us a refinement and a strength in our trust in God's grace. And we can see in God's word that this is a progression, and as it happens to us, we will be stronger and stronger in the Lord. When we trust God through these afflictions, he will be faithful to remove us from them. And we will be encouraged and know that we can trust him. But is it to the point that James would say that we should have joy in the middle of these trials? I think that philosophy and secular wisdom instructs mankind to be calm during troubles. But Christianity teaches us to be joyful because these trials produce, proceed from the love and not from the fury of God. And what could be the motive for God even putting us through these trials? I think it's for our good and his glory. And I think in the midst of these, when we have these trials, we will become and see that we should be more conformed to the image of Christ himself, the one that in this life had so many trials, had temptations, had those that would persecute him, and he is the example of how seeking after the will of his father in prayer, he would continue to be faithful. Again, a truth that comes through in the book of James, it's a God-centered book. Verse 5 starts to show us one of the characteristics of God, and that is the generosity of God. Verse 5 said God gives us wisdom. Verse 12, he wants to give us a crown of life. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It is from God. And what if it, we find ourselves lacking any one of these things? I think we can go back to verse 5 again, and it says, ask in faith. And what does it mean that we should ask in faith? Asking is no more than going to the Lord in prayer. It's our time before God where we petition him for strength, for wisdom, for understanding, for discernment in those times of trial. And not only do we ask him, but we also know that, there, that he guarantees that he will answer them and there will be wisdom coming to us. He says, it will be given you by God 
we have his word on it, and he is always faithful. But not only are we asking, we're asking in faith. So what does this faith look like? The faith that is spoken of here has been tried by the afflictions and, the, and has produced a belief in the power and the word and in the promises of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is a great place to have an example of how trials and seeking after God has rewarded us by bringing us through those trials. I think there are many here today that could give an example in their own lives of exactly that. I've heard a number of your testimonies and I know that in the middle of affliction, you trusted God and he was faithful and he brought you through that. And I would say to you, for those that are a Christian here today and they haven't had that trial in their life, I believe they're coming. I think we should be prepared. I think more will come. And I think that we should know and understand that we can trust God in the middle of them. There should be no double-minded thought among us. And, it makes, and make, James makes a reference to that. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 5 says, Paul writes, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in my demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It is the power of God that will get us through the times of troubles. But I believe that James knew his church. I think that he knew the people that were among him, and because of what was happening at that time and the church coming together, there were rich and there were poor. Maybe something that had not been seen before. Maybe only the elevated, the, the rich, were part of God's chosen. But here it was, rich and poor. And James addresses that, and he will talk much more about that in future chapters, but it's mentioned here. To the poor, he says, he is wealthy in, spirit, in spiritual treasure. He has high status in the kingdom of God. The lowest of the low have that status before the true holy God. And to the rich, and if you interpret this to mean rich Christians, and I do, there are such things as rich Christians, even though God's word many times warns against being rich. Abraham himself, in God's word, says he was rich in silver and gold. But for those that, were, that are rich, James means that they can rejoice that they learned where their true treasure can be found, and that's in God and not in personal wealth. I like to refer to what I call the book of Tom many times to our children. Tom was my older brother. He was an intelligent guy. And he had sayings in life that seemed to make a lot of sense. He gave good counsel. 
And one of the things that I remember him saying was, when you have trouble, when you have problems, the nature of those troubles are, no matter how much money you throw at them, they'll never go away. You have a dent in your car, you throw money at it, it'll go away. Terminal cancer, nothing will help. Not even your riches. And I think this speaks to part of the double-mindedness that James is warning us against. The rich know that their wealth can get them through so many things that they might first want to rely on themselves and say, I can get through this. Where the poor would say, I have nothing else. I have no doubt that I have to go before God. But the rich can also go to God and forget about the resources that they think they can have. James gives us one more truth about God in our focus on trials and testing, and that is God is holy and cannot be tempted with evil. Verse 13. So if God is holy, he is not the author of any man's sin. There is nothing in the nature of God that man can blame for our sin. Because God cannot be tempted with evil himself, so neither can he be tempted, the tempter of others. I think there is an important difference between test and tempt. Think about Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil himself. For 40 days, without food or water, here is Jesus. Jesus was tested by God at that time and found faithful. But the devil was the one that tempted him with the lies of this world and with perverted scripture. But God, in the form of Jesus himself, would be faithful. James taught uh, there is a true cause of this evil and these lies that are in us. In verse 14, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's in us. It is upon us that sin comes. Temptation first draws away and it entices. There is a great deal of cunning and deceit and flattery and sin, and it gains our interest. Nobody has ever said that sin did not look pleasurable to the person that it was tempting. But remember in this process, sinners who perish are led by their own destruction. And because their action, uh, of their actions, God is justified in the judgment on sinners for their disobedience. First part of verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Seeing be, sin being allowed to excite desires in us will soon ripen those desires into consent. Consent when it grows in our minds, brings actual execution, which gives birth to sin. Before any of that happens, back when it was still a desire, when there was that first draw and enticement, we should flee for that, from that sin. We should seek after the truth of who God is. And the final issue of sin is death. 
God warned Adam and Eve before they ever sinned that if they did, if they disobeyed him, there would be death. There would be death in this life. There would be a spiritual death that they would be ever separated from God himself. So there is death of the body. There is an eternal death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would like to say to those that are here today that maybe are hearing and trying to understand sin for maybe the first time. Sin is a nature to all of us. We have fallen short of the glory of God and has separated us from God. And that sin must be accounted for. There is nothing that we can do to make a right standing before God himself. Only the blood of Christ, the payment of Jesus Christ himself, can restore our relationship to God. I would encourage you, think about your sin, your lostness. Remember that Christ is the one that paid that debt. Trust him, and in faith, he will come to you and show you that he is Lord and Savior of your life. James ends his instruction on trials and tests of faith with another truth about God the Father, and that is every good gift comes from God, who James describes as the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13.8 So let's remember one of our, let's remember none of our darkness, our imperfections, our sinful actions are to be charged to our Father of lights. James is making sure his brother's Christians today understand how important our response is to God. In times of trial, we should trust God. Testing of our faith, turn to God. Resisting of sin, submit to God. And even good gifts, perfect gifts from God himself, ask God and thank God. What should our response be then? I believe it is to obey the word of God. Verses 19 through 27. I want to read first verses 19 through 21. Obeying the word of God. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the meekness, the, implant, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Again, James is using language, beloved brothers. He holds dear to those that he has in his midst, that he knows have been brought together because of the oneness in Christ himself. I think that we should say, see our brothers and sisters in Christ the same way. We should have great affection for those that God has redeemed. 
right now in our nation comes a time in our political process where we have primaries and we have debates and we have people standing up on podiums, these candidates that are running for office that want to be elected. And at the center of all that happens in front of those people is that that candidate wants to make sure that they're heard, that, they're no that they are known, that they are noticed, and above all, that they stick out. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what God's word, that's not what James is saying to us. We should be slow to speak and quick to hear. It is much more important for us to always be willing to listen. That is a characteristic that we have, should have. But James also talks of something else we should have. We should be slow to anger, controlling our emotions, and thereby not falling prey to rampant wickedness. And why does this conduct matter? Because our conduct should be the same as that of the righteous God that we serve. And how do we know and understand who this God is and what he expects of us? From his word. His word is the example. His word will show us who he is, who he expects us to be. The same word that James uses says is able to save our souls. And I think that sometimes people don't understand that there's two parts of the gospel. There's the part that gives us the assurance and draws us to Christ himself and redeems us and gives us eternal salvation. There is the salvation part, but also in God's word, there is instruction as to how we are to live. We can't stay with just instruction and think that that's all there is to God's word because we probably have lost the part with which is our salvation. We can't think of just salvation without it changing our hearts and our lives because it probably, if it doesn't, if it doesn't make us change our lives, we should question our salvation. But hearing isn't enough. Not even hearing and understanding the word. We must be doers. Verses 23 through 25 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is a, like a man who looks intently into his face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The true hearer of the word of God must lead us to godly action. James uses the analogy of looking into a, mi a mirror. Mirrors at that time in history were probably made of some kind of metal, highly polished, they weren't near as good as what a mirror for us is today. But God's word is that perfect mirror. There is no 
distortion from it. But what does it show us? It shows us that our souls need God's grace. It reveals to us our true nature, our lostness, our hopelessness, our standing before God, which is our condemnation. If we had any doubt about the trustworthiness of God's word, James wants to again remind us, remind us it's a perfect law, a synonym for the sacred scriptures. We're reminded that God's word is a reflection of him and it can be trusted. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This law of the Lord, the law of liberty, it comes about because God sets us free by it. It drives us to Christ, who is the only one who can set us free from the burden of the law, because we can never keep it. And because we can never keep it, it also removes the guilt from us for our inability, because we look to Christ, not to ourselves. So our right understanding of God's law leads us to action, as we see in the last two verses of chapter, chapter 1, as I read those, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, religion that is poor, pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from this world. Right action comes from right religion. I think for us to be able to understand these last parts of this scripture, we have to have a definition for the word religion. If you ever heard me speak before, one of my go-to places when I'm looking up a, a, a biblical word for a definition is Richard's Bible Dictionary. Not this Richard, but an actual Richard's. Well, Richard let me down this time. There was nothing there that would really give me the information that I thought that James was talking about here. So I went to a couple different things. I put this together, and I think this is what religion means. First of all, I think that the word religion here is a verb, not a noun. It's a verb because it's action. It isn't just a name of something. So religion is action of godliness, by our, be motivated by our love of God, done in worshipful obedience to our Lord. That's religion. James says the first act for this religious outpouring from us is to bridle our tongue. We are to have our tongue in check. He will write much more about this in chapter 3, but in chapter 3, verse 6, six he says, an uncontrolled tongue is like a fire that rages out of control. It's all about self-control. He starts with our tongue. And so we must have self-control, which is actual worship of God himself. 
everything that we do, when we continue to make ourselves more Christ-like and, and remove ourselves from the stain of this world, we will be doing self-control that is honoring and praising to God. James's direction is to serve the lowly. That's our second act of worship through religion. Much of what Jesus did in his time in ministry on this earth was exactly that. Ministering to those that were weak, the blind, the sick, those who were of a very low status in this world. The example that we have here is the same. The orphans, the widows. This isn't a new concept that James came up with. We can go back to Psalm 68, verse 5, when David himself, in a song of praise, would say, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his habitation. So our religious acts are those of self-control and service to others. God uses others to care for others, to show his ability to meet the needs of others. It is our act of worship. We can be those that are doing those, and it gives glory to God, not to us. Much in just the first chapter of James. As I think through what I've spoken about, what we've seen in his word, I try to sum it up this way. This is just a glimpse of the servant of Jesus Christ, James. The book of James refers frequently to the Old Testament and I think will remind us of, new, of the Old Testament literature, wisdom literature. Even to the point that it has led many to refer to James as the New Testament book of Proverbs. This book is characterized by its focus on practical Christian living James does not settle for right doctrine if that right doc doctrine does not result in godly character, which in turn produces actions. We have seen in chapter 1 one of the most important themes in the book of James, that is perseverance in the middle of trials. The faith of Christians is under constant attack, and we are encouraged as believers to stand firm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for those that you have enlightened, Lord, that you would use through the power of the Holy Spirit to again reveal the truth of who you are. Lord, sin is not a subject that we like to discuss or even think about, but it is our nature because we have rebelled against you. You are not the author of sin. It is within us, Lord. But you show us time and time again through your word that Christ has conquered the grave, the power of the devil, and sin. And we trust in his redeeming work. Lord, as we think about the trials that we will have and have had in this life, I pray that we continue to seek after you, that we turn to you, that we are not self-sufficient, that we are not double-minded thinking First, we will act and then turn to, turn to you. 
May we come quickly before you, confessing that we need you in our hearts and lives. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.